Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. In Italy, for 30 years under the Borgias, they had warfare, terror, murder, and bloodshed. But they produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they had brotherly love, they had 500 years of democracy and peace, and what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. <laughs> that was Orson Welles as Harry Lyme in The Third Man, um, a, a, a famous description of civilization, uh, yeah. and with its focus on the Renaissance as a time of, of terror, but also of stupefying artistic achievement. It channels kind of, you know, a slightly complex idea of the golden age, Dominic, which is going yeah. to be our I don't think they do make cuckoo clocks today. in Switzerland, by the way. I think they make them in the Black Forest in Germany. Um, That's correct. So, they, they do. Uh, Orson Welles got yeah. called up so by So Harry Lyme or Orson <laughs> Welles. <laughs> to apologise. Because, oh, of course, Orson Welles wrote that. Graham Greene didn't write that. He wrote the film, but Orson Welles wrote that speech. Yeah. Um, and, of course, The Third Man is itself the product of what people might see as a golden age of of cinema um now defunct in the age of oh, very marvel good. films and so on so yes golden ages it's a it's a it's a funny topic because it seems quite amorphous but we all know what we mean we all know we all have a sense well do we do well, we I because think we faramir, do. Far, well faramir zane yeah. has asked what makes a golden age a golden age and conversely diogo morgado yeah. the only man in the world more left-wing than you dominic <laughs> is, is that by is his a, own description no, he's just a parent. I mean, he's very, very. Uh, he, he's, he 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 is. Um, he's asking: Isn't the whole concept of golden ages incredibly outdated? Like the great man theory, the study of history has advanced beyond golden or dark ages to a much more interesting palette of infinite greys. So he's an Orson Welles man, because I mean, he does have. A, I mean, there are inf- there are greys in that Orson Welles. No, I think I think Orson Welles is saying that there's, the Renaissance was golden age. It's just that um, maybe, you know, the, maybe the context for the golden age is violence. Yeah, but, it's okay, fine. But so, you might say that a golden age is a golden age that's cult- a cultural efflorescence, but is also economically prosperous. Yeah, though the two usually go hand in hand, I would say. Dutch golden age, Spanish golden age. The Renaissance is the classic yeah. counterpoint to that. I mean, anyway, let, so, Dominic, what do you think? What, what makes a golden age a gold? And is it legitimate to talk about golden ages? Yes. So what makes a golden age a golden age? It's all retrospective, isn't it? It's, um, it's a sense of loss, a sense of nostalgia. Um, so this is, so uh, in a, in a funny way, what makes a golden age a golden age is nothing necessarily to do with the age itself, but the age that follows it. So in other words, the, the age that, that puts it on the pedestal. So you need a sense of, um, so, so it's not that the whole concept of golden ages is not just about yesterday. It's also about today. Um, so in other words, what makes so you can't have a golden age without a, an iron you, age. You can't have a 1960s without a 1970s. Maybe put it that way. Um, and I think, uh, as for the second question, so that would be what makes a golden age. A gold, uh, it's perceived as a period of affluence or a period of success that's followed by one of disappointment. It's the kind of party and then the hangover. And, um, the second point, you know, is it outdated? I mean, I'm sure historians, academic historians would absolutely go along with this. I mean, I think if you sat in a university, research seminar and talked about the golden golden age of this or that <laughs> you know there'd be all sorts of disapproving looks and frowns and stuff 
but obviously it's i think it's it's hardwired into our into our kind of imagination, our historical imagination, isn't it? That we think about the golden age of Athens, the golden age of Elizabethan England, the golden age of... And also politically. Political parties generally trade in golden ages. So the Tories well, have a sense of when Britain was great. Labour has a sense of when Britain was compassionate. And, and, and everything has been downhill since then. I think that's, that's part of them, any modern political movement's appeal. Is, isn't the anxiety around golden ages expressive of, of two things? One of which is the idea that, say, certain great works of literature or art or whatever um, can be said to be greater than those of other periods. Yeah. And also that um, the idea that it's somehow uh, chauvinist to say that um, – a certain place has a particular golden age and what about the other places um how are you measuring the golden age yeah sort of it's that classic distrust well it's also that slight academic distrust of basically saying anything at all (laughs) which is well i think of saying that of saying that certain things were were kind of better than other things there's a real anxiety about that yeah that's absolutely right i completely agree with that they're not better or worse they're just different that's the sort of the mantra isn't it yeah yeah it's bob dylan and keats when obviously Keats is better than Bob Dylan. I mean, everyone yeah. knows that. <laughs> um, <laughs> because Dominic, you said you said um, that golden ages are defined by ages that come after them. Yeah, by is, and large. The, by and large, you're going to now annoy me with an ex- exception. I know. I can uh, just see it coming. Okay, so um, yeah. There's, so this question from Max Parker: What would be the shortest gap between the golden age itself and it being referred to as such? So I would say in the Western imagination, the founding idea of golden ages are yeah. Periclean Athens yeah, and Augustan F- Rome. So okay. those are the, those, those are basically for people in the West, those are the two pinnacles. And so when you, we, you know, we had Mary Beard talking about classics, when you study classics, the focus tends to be on the great writers of, of, Athens and of Augustan Rome. Yeah. And both, it was an important part of the mythology of both those periods that they were living through golden ages. So Pericles gives us a funeral speech in the second year of the, of the Peloponnesian war. Spartans have been at the gates and he says, basically we're brilliant. Athens is great. We're the school, you know, we, 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 we are the school for Greece. Yeah. We are the best. And I would say that <laughs> reply to Max Parker's question, I mean, the golden age has already ended in a sense when Pericles says that, because very soon um, a great plague is going to hit Athens. Pericles is going to die of it and the Periclean age is going to come to an end. I mean, obviously the genius of, you know, are we allowed to talk about genius? I suppose kind of, uh, but you've got, you've still got Socrates and Plato and the yeah. tragedians and Aristophanes to come. They're still floating around, but it is a horrible age of plague and war. So perhaps to that extent, the, mytho- the mythologization is going on. And, and with Augustus, you've got um, this famous fourth eclogue written by Virgil before Augustus becomes Augustus even. I mean, kind of when there's a, still a civil war going on. And he's, he has this kind of famous description of um, a new cycle, bread of time beginning again and justice and a golden age. He says the golden age returns and he describes the birth of a child, a baby boy, the generation of iron will pass, the generation of gold will inherit all the world. And the Romans interpreted that as meaning this, this great golden age of, of, of Augustus. Yeah. Although, of course, in due course, Christians gave it a different spin. But if we can unpick both of those. So first of all, Periclean Athens. 
are people at the time aware? Do they think of themselves as living through a golden age? And what was your I answer? Think so, yes, they, I think do. they do. They yeah. do. And yeah. to people immediately afterwards, so in Athens, after the death of Pericles, after the death of Socrates, and so on, do they think? Do they look back and say that was a golden age, and it's been downhill since then? So the golden age of Pericles is when Athens is at peace, it's strong, it's building the Parthenon, and so yeah. on. And then the Peloponnesian and, War, presumably. And then the Peloponnesian War begins. And I think, yeah. I mean, if you look at Thucydides, who's our chief, you know, who gives us the funeral speech, uh, his book is a set, you know, his history is essentially an account of how over optimism based on a sense that they were living through a golden age is what dragged Athens into what becomes uh, decades of war and ultimately defeat. Hubris and nemesis. I mean, that often lies at the heart of all golden ages, doesn't it? The idea that doom and disaster are coming. You're in the middle of the party, but the hangover is looming. Um, As for Augustan Rome, I mean, how much is that? So again, uh, there's a a different way that lots of people, Ronald Simon and so on, have described that period as the imposition of an autocracy um, uh, after the sort of slightly creative anarchy of the Republic that um, there's a dark side to Augustus, to Augustus as a dictator, that all this is pure propaganda to justify his regime. I mean, that would be the obvious counter-argument, wouldn't it? That got, this is a golden age of a, of a, of a, of a Roman totalitarian. Oh, he's not totalitarian, but yes, I mean, undoubtedly, he's, he's an autocratic figure. Um, but against that, you know, where there had been war, he brings peace. Um, yeah. And... You know, Virgil is just one of a number of poets who who celebrate um, the achievements that that you know the, the the world of peace that Augustus has brought about, and, and I think that you know to this day it's looked back on as as an age of, of great cultural achievement, um, and of course it also has the overlay that comes from the fact that that Jesus is born in Augustus's yeah. life, and so that Virgilian prophecy has a kind of Christian element as well. But that doesn't matter for quite a while afterward. I mean, no, it doesn't. But it, but but it means but it means that um, even even once you know the memory of um, perhaps the kind of the political context for Augustus is you know he's he's brought in the this this era of peace starts to fade, and maybe even once the kind of the hold of the literature of the period, which is massive on yeah. subsequent generations of Romans, once that starts to fade, be- because it. Christians come to see it as having this cosmic significance. The, the, the age of Augustus is the, the time when Christ is born, when God enters earth. Therefore, it kind of massively dignifies it. But isn't that, isn't that just one of three gold, Roman golden ages, Tom? So first of all, uh, just before Augustus comes, into, comes onto the stage, there are people like Cato who have a sense that they're living in an age of luxury and dissolution yeah, and that before then there was a Repub- yeah, there was a purer, more decent Republican the, golden age that's now been lost. Well, there's a, there's a golden the golden age where Saturn had ruled as king of Italy on the Capitol. <laughs> right. it's, that, it's, that really it's is a kind quite, of, a, quite a lost golden age. <laughs> the the idea of of kind of early Rome as uh, as virtuous and uh, a noble. Um, an age before they got corrupted by Greek sex manuals and celebrity <laughs> chefs and the like. Um, celebrity chefs. It's it's not exact. It's not exactly a golden age, though, is it? Because it, it's 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 an age when there isn't any gold. That's the whole point. They're virtuous right. because they they don't have gold. They have nothing. Yeah, 
they have turnips and they have war and they have their <laughs> devotion to duty. Right. And what yeah. more does anyone need? Great dad's army. Um, so yeah. uh, what about the, the th- what I would say is the third great Roman golden age? And this is the one that lots of listeners will be familiar with. Tom McTague sent in a question about it. Um, the golden age of the Antonines. So this is the Edward Gibbon talks about this in the decline of fall of the Roman Empire. And he says very famously, a quote you'll be familiar with, Tom, if a man were called upon to fix the period in the history of the world during which the condition of the human race was most happy and prosperous, he would without hesitation name that which elapsed from the death of Domitian to the accession of Commodus. So it's the age of the Antonines, Marcus Aurelius, Antoninus Pius, and so on. Was that a golden age? Well, there's another question from Will Rester. Did the Romans believe at the peak of the empire that they were living in a golden age? Um, And the answer is is that that one guy certainly did. And he was a a man from what's now Turkey called Aelius um, Aristides, who in 154 came to Rome. He was a famous orator. And he basically, you know, he, he, he spoke to the imperial court and he said, Rome is brilliant. <laughs> they must have been delighted by that. <laughs> they were. They absolutely loved it. And he described Rome as a, as a great garden. The empire is a garden that um, all was kind of order and beautiful orchards and things like that. And, and that, um, you know, the weeds had all been pulled up and everything was, was fabulous. And it's that that Gibbon is drawing on, basically, in his opening to the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Yeah. Uh, and of course, what, what gives it <laughs> the edge is that, is that we know what's coming. And, and actually, I, I think I'm right that Aelius Aristides in due course dies of the plague that hits the Roman Empire in the, in the reign yeah. of Marcus Aurelius. And which is a kind of, you know, it, 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 it's the first of numerous um, pandemics that sweep over the empire in the late second and, and throughout the third century and kind of merges with the convulsions of civil war that <laughs> basically means that people inevitably in the third century are looking back to this time. Yeah. Crisis of the third century and all that kind of debased coinage yeah. and inflation yeah. and stuff. So but, an age um, of gold is followed by an age of iron. But it, so does that suggest therefore that the, the idea of a golden age is kind of, um, it's 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 absolutely inherent in the in the classical world sense of time that there's a kind of cyclical you know the pendulum swings age of gold age of lead or whatever well i th- so i th- i think that the enshrining of of fifth century athens and augustan rome as kind of twin pin- twin peaks is a feature of of how the roman world understands the past yeah. and indeed the hellenistic world because so one of the key things in enshrining Athens as a golden age is the the sense that, um, say, Aeschylus, uh, Sophocles, Euripides, the great tragedians, that these are the top three. These are the top yeah. tragedians. Sense of a canon. And so, in, so, so in Alex- yes, exactly. And so in, in Alexandria, when they build the library, th- they ask the Athenians, could we have the copies of the plays? And the Athenians say, yeah, but you've got to pay a massive deposit because otherwise you'll never give it back to us. So they send the copies to Alexandria <laughs> The Alexandrians say, "Fine, keep the deposit." Um, so, so um, the Library of Alexandria and the kind of you know the, the, this sense that um, not just Homer but the, the tragedians of Greece, of, uh, sorry, of Athens, of fifth century Athens, are the, the classics. Really beds down the idea that that was a golden age, and the same happens for the for Roman education that Virgil and Horace and Ovid and so on get enshrined, and that of course then feeds through into the Middle Ages. And I I, I do think that um, that Athens and 
and um and and Augustan Rome are are kind of underpin the idea of of golden ages for people in in Europe. So you think of the Raphael painting School of Athens. Yeah. Um it's that is what a uh, that's what a golden age is and of course then it informs the renaissance yeah but a lot of these golden ages they're they're about power aren't they they're they're very powerful states that have exerted influence over their neighbors that have won wars that are now at peace well so, but, but but is i mean so that's the question is when we talk you know does a golden and that's the question that harry limes piece focuses does a golden age is it okay for it just to be an age of great cultural achievement like renaissance italy or does it have to be an age of of military and economic power as well well i don't i I don't think harry lyme is right because i mean we've talked a little bit in this podcast before about how for example in the 17th century people had an idea of the norman yoke and and implicit in that is the idea that anglo-saxon england was a kind of golden age when you know people would meet and decide in assemblies you know the laws and the future of their society when the heavy hand of the normans with their castles and their knights and their feudalism had not yet crushed the spirits of the english working man so that's one golden age right i mean that's and that idea that's very, that was very popular with the victorians and indeed it was popular with sort of it, it's actually there in kind of progressive thinking a little bit that there was a a kinder, gentler, more bucolic age, which has been lost with the kind of you know it's kind of the Hobbiton, isn't it? It's the Shire. Yes, Tolkien's Golden Age is very much related to that. I mean, that's got nothing to do with imperialism and and winning wars and because Anglo-Saxon England was not a country that went out and fought wars by and large. It, well, it was an age in which there was a lot of slavery. And yeah. the Norman Conquest got rid of it. So it's almost the opposite of the truth. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, you could say the same about Periclean Athens, though, couldn't you? And in Gustav Of course. Rome. There's a lot of slavery yes. in. There's a very big gap between yes. rich and poor. So it's not a yes. golden age for everybody. No, absolutely not. And and uh, golden ages generally depend on it not being golden ages for other people. Right. I'm I mean, almost by definition. Um, um, because, because, because uh, you know, what is it, the... The Walter Benjamin thing that there is no monument to civilization that is not also a monument to barbarism. Right, you exactly. Know, the, the Parthenon yeah. was paid for out of the tax, you know, the, the donations that the Athenians extorted from the Delian League, and Augustan yeah. Rome was founded on, obviously, kind of you know the mass exploitation of the provinces. Um, and I guess you'd say the same of of kind of more recent gold. I mean, because you see, I, I I I do slightly wonder about golden ages that I think that the closer we, I think Athens and Rome are kind of, they have a mythic quality because they're, they're removed from us and they're distant from us. Yeah. But in more recent times, I mean, can you seriously talk about a, a, a European state having a golden age? I would say maybe 16th century People Spain, do. 17th I, century, the Netherlands. But I'm, I'm just not- going to say every week, Tom Holland brings me up and says, <laughs> when are we going to do the golden age of the Dutch Republic? I mean, you're, you know, you- <laughs> You're famously obsessed yeah. with your with your namesake country, and <laughs> and desperate to do that that golden age. So you do think that, right? I mean, the golden age. Was, you mentioned the golden age of Spain. People do talk about. It. I mean, clearly, I Spain was yeah. top nation in the 16th century. Gold. I mean, gold. Literally, gold flooding in from South America from its conquests. Tremendous explosion of, um, you know, of, of artistic creativity and so on. Um, I mean, Charles V is. You know, the most powerful man in the world 
by a billion miles. And it's again, it's that pattern, isn't it? Spain is not so powerful in the 17th century, starts to become a bit of a basket case in the 18th century, total basket case in the 19th and part of the 20th century, civil war, and then, you know, Franco and so on. So obviously the, the 16th century looms large. And it would seem to me, I mean, obviously if I was in a Spanish history seminar, I wouldn't say this out loud, but I might, I'd be thinking it. It just seemed to me bonkers to pretend that the 16th century wasn't the top century for Spain. Yes. <laughs> but, but I think in the case of Spain, so a lot of the, 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 um, cultural peaks kind of follow on from it. And they look forward, they, they kind of, so you've got Cervantes, Don Quixote, yeah. who, who mistakes windmills for giants. Well, he's kind of in uh, that cu- uh, cusp, isn't he? Because he's, so he's on the cusp. He's looking and back then you've got, to an age of chivalry. So, and then you've got Velasquez. Yeah. You know, these, these paintings of the, of the court that is kind of, you know, there's a lot of vulnerability there yeah. in, the, in, the, in Velasquez's paintings. And I think that they, the effect of that is retrospectively to cast 16th century Spain as being slightly, its, its decline is hardwired into its period. Well, that's greatness. definitely true. But that's true of all golden ages, though, isn't it? You said it at Periclean Athens. You know the plague is coming. You know the Peloponnesian War is coming. I'm not sure. No, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's right. I, I, think, I think you think, you know, the Parthenon is amazing or Virgil is amazing. These are, these are, these are great achievements. Yeah. I think with with Spain, the the greatness is actually in questioning the idea of greatness. Oh, okay, okay. Is that is that? I mean, I'm uh, slightly thinking on the cuff yeah, here. But I, I, let's hope those Spanish but, but, specialists are listening to this. Podcast. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> what about Elizabethan England? I mean, there was a film, the second Elizabeth film of the Kate Blanchett films is called Elizabeth, The Golden Age. And people always, I mean, my Ladybird books when I was a child talked about the golden age of Elizabethan England, William Shakespeare, Sir Francis Drake. Um, Defeat of the Spanish Armada. Uh, I was just about to say, <laughs> sending the Spanish Armada packing. We don't obviously don't mention all the naval battles we lost um, and our own attempts. Uh, they're, they're strangely um, not present well, in the histories. But yeah, I mean, I mean, that sense of Elizabethan England as a golden age is absolutely, it has for generations been hardwired into the British national consciousness, hasn't it? Or these, the English national consciousness. Yes, it's an age of, of Maypoles and Merry England. Right, exactly. And it's clearly not true. Yeah. But I mean, I think... <laughs> That's the problem. Because th- it's an age of inflation and plague. And yes. Elizabeth having very iso- bad teeth. Isolation. And paranoia and about Catholic plots and all those kinds of things. Hostility with Europe. Yes. Plague. Yeah. So you, Inflation. So you could say all problems those... Problems with supply lines. Yeah, right. You could say all those things about... <laughs> People will look go- back and say 2021, a golden year. <laughs> but couldn't you say that about all these periods, that they're, that they're fictionalised, confected, kind of romanticised to some extent? Yeah, but I, I, I mean, I reckon that the, the reason that, that people think of um, uh, Tudor England, I mean, Elizabethan England as uh, a golden age is principally because of Shakespeare, because Shakespeare is seen as... Top writer. You know, our, our top writer. Yeah. Top top global writer. <laughs> yeah. And that, but of course, I mean, you know, Shakespeare, you know, a lot of his greatest plays were written under James. And nobody can say that James is, a, you know, Jacobean England is, is a golden age because he's Stuart. So the civil, war, civil wars are coming. Yeah. But I think it's entirely yeah. down to... It, it's... It, 
it's not just Shakespeare, but it's it's also the contrast between Elizabeth I, Gloriana, Virgin Queen, all that kind of stuff with the Stuarts. But I don't but, think it's, I mean... I, but you see, I, I think that's I, the key. I, I, think, I, I think the 1590s were, were a terrible time. See, I think that's the key to this whole issue, Golden Age, is that contrast. It's not the age itself. It's the it's the often politically drawn comparison with the period that that follows it. Um, maybe we should take a break, Tom, and then we should come back yes. and talk about. Um, see, I think there's a lot to be said about 20th century golden ages, the idea of uh, falling away from a period of virtue and so on. And we should do some more questions. So we'll see you after the break. Support for this episode comes from the National Theatre. So, Tom, we are talking once again about the National Theatre's very own streaming platform, and it is called the National Theatre at Home. Yeah, it's a fantastic way to watch loads of brilliant theatre from the comfort of your sofa at home. There's no need to miss out just because a show has sold out or because you can't get a babysitter or because a trip to London is too far for one evening. And this month, Dominic, they are launching the Olivier award-winning musical, The Little Big Things, an extraordinary true story about an ordinary family. When one moment changes everything, Henry's family are split between a past they no longer recognise and a future they could never foresee. It is based on the Sunday Times best-selling autobiography by Henry Fraser. It is a great new musical about the transformative power of family and how it is the little things that matter the most. Oh, Tom, it's so life-affirming, isn't it? You can subscribe now for only £9.99 a month. And to find out more, visit ntathome.com. That's N-T-A-T home.com this episode is brought to you by better help bottling everything up is never a good idea it can have terrible consequences for instance look at all the conflicts throughout history i wonder how many of them could have been solved if they just talked things out and tom i have a confession for our listeners as you know i've been really struggling with anxiety about the massive series that we've got coming on The Rest is History, all the prep we have to do for that series on the French Revolution, the First World War. I mean, it's all mounting up, isn't it? And when we talked it out, I felt so much better now that I got all those crippling anxieties and insecurities off my chest. If you want to talk, you can always talk to me. But if not, then I highly recommend therapy. It can help you learn positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. It empowers you, Dominic, to be the best version of yourself. If you want to give therapy a try, why not check out BetterHelp? It's entirely online, it's convenient and flexible, and it's really easy to get started. You just fill out a brief questionnaire and they'll match you with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash restishistory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Rest is history. Hello, welcome back to The Rest is History. And Dominic, uh, on the subject of Golden Ages. Yes. Of course, one of the key aspects of Golden Ages was that um, people with things to say had to be provided with platforms, didn't they? They did. They did. Uh, there were many platforms available, but one in particular, I think, looms large in our minds, Tom, doesn't it? <laughs> it, it does. It does. Um, it's uh, it's an online magazine that very, very kindly has uh, sponsored us. Uh, it's called Unheard, 
and I'm reading here their own self-description. It looks at today's events through a wider lens of history and philosophy and is full of independent thinking and writing. And it's full of really great writing. Is it? I not think it's, yeah, it's full of great writing. I think it's, is it not fair to say that some of Britain's absolute top, top, top historians write for Unheard? Is that right? Top podcasting historians. Yes. Can you think of any in particular? Well, Dominic, I can think of you. Because um, uh, last week, did you not, you wrote a, a piece about um, uh, how we might be returning to 1970s style high inflation? Chilling. A chilling piece, I think, is the uh, technical term. Such yeah. was life in the summer of 1975, you wrote in Unheard. The age of Shawadiwadi, 10cc and the Bay City Rollers. Harold Wilson was PM. Tom Baker was in his time-travelling pomp. Britain had just voted to remain in the common market. And the space hopper was the fashion accessory du jour. You see, even as you're reading that, people are leaving this podcast <laughs> and, and flocking. They're flooding. <laughs> Actually, they're flooding <laughs> onto Unheard's website to read these, this top punditry. But I'm, I'm, I'm not wrong, am I, to say that... Uh, Top historians of the ancient and, and medieval worlds also write for unheard, don't they? That's right. Yes, yes. I, I also That's right. have written for it. This is this is very spontaneous uh, chat, isn't it? <laughs> right. So yes, it is. It is. Uh, so Dominic, both you and I write for unheard, which is an excellent reason, I think, for uh, our listeners to rush off to unheard.com/rest, unheard.com/rest, and you will get a three-month subscription for free, and you can read anything on the site including me and Dominic. And I believe, Tom, it's normally a pound a week. So our <laughs> listeners, are, we are absolutely spoiling people. We're we really are. People. Yes, we really are. Unheard.com slash rest. And if you don't enjoy it, you can just unsubscribe. So that is truly an offer worthy of yeah. a golden age, is it not? I mean, and talking of not enjoying it, uh, the script says you can read Tom Holland <laughs> on how Hitler killed the devil or how Martin Luther would rule Twitter. Now, we've done a podcast on that. Did you write that before or after the podcast? Uh, I wrote it after. So he just ripped off the podcast. No, no. The podcast and informed my views. I refined them. Yeah. I, I cut out the bits that you contributed and then... Exactly. There you go. <laughs> yeah. An, an offering worthy of a golden age. So Talking I, think which. A, I think that's enough. That's <laughs> yeah. enough advertising. Let's get back to golden ages. Hello. Welcome back to The Rest is History. We are talking golden ages. And in the first half, we were kind of focusing very much on... Um, ancient golden ages, uh, early modern golden ages. But Dominic, if we look at more contemporary history, yeah. um, would you say that, um, say if we look back to the 50s, that's there's a kind of conservative take that that was a golden age. Absolutely. When you look to the 60s, yeah. there's a kind of progressive take that that was a golden age. In other words, is it possible for one's sense of what a golden age is to be determined by one's politics? It is determined by one's politics, I think, when you're thinking about post-war history. And actually, I wouldn't even start in the 50s. Um, Ken Loach recently did a film, Spirit of 45. and um, Yes, of course. There are people at Labour Party conferences wear T-shirts that say, what would Clem do? And reference to the Attlee government post-war. So, but do they? But no one, no one thinks that uh, you know oh, austerity Britain was a golden age. You, you clearly do don't read the the comments under the articles in the Guardian website, Tom. I mean, you you'll happily promote their Saturday newspaper, but you're clearly not <laughs> digging deep enough into the um into the, into the website because if you read the comments, lots of people say, "Oh, that was a time when people looked out for each other, when we had a government that was pure." 
when uh, there was a real, it was tough times, but a real collective spirit and people pulled together and they- Tough times. They, they showed compassion. But you can't have a golden age if the times are tough. But, but this is, well, well, that's a different, that's your coin, your kind of golden age that is like early Rome. You know, you said turnips and war. Yes, absolutely. So there's a, absolutely, but I there's a think, kind yes. of austere yes. golden age, which is we yes. had nothing but people. Civic virtue. Civic virtue. The, the, it's, it's so funny. Actually. Well, so there's an, there's, so there's a question on that. Um, uh, where is it? Yes. Steve from Portslade. Right. To what extent is the judgment of a golden age a moral one? Yeah. I.e. golden ages are looked at as examples of virtue and lost values. See, I don't think that's particular. I don't think that is necessarily a golden age. So I don't think that, that the Attlee government is seen as a golden age any more than the Romans saw, you know, the kind of early years of the Republic as golden age. They saw them as virtuous ages. Right. But I don't well, think it's that's maybe slightly different. Maybe slightly different. I agree with you. I, or maybe you could Whereas say. Whereas the 60s that- is because the 60s is a great explosion, not just of kind of cultural achievement. But it's it's prosperity. It's well, I think people. Some people would say the fifties were a golden age. So they would say, "You're right." There's a slightly sort of um, uh, a sort of. I was about to say Peter Hitchens, but actually he always says he doesn't think the fifties were a golden age. But there's a definite conservative argument. You know, fifties. Oh, you could leave your door unlocked. Um, full employment. Uh, you know, um, the crime. No was immigration. Low. I mean. Well, of course, the fifties was the heyday of immigration. So, so much of this is based on complete mythology. By the way, as is the the countervailing mythology of the nineteen sixties, and those two things operate obviously in in conflict with one another. You know, it's it's a sort of Beatles versus Stones, fifties versus sixties. You choose your choose your fighter, and, tr- kind of thing. and absolutely true of America as well. Absolutely true of America. So, in, I mean, I think probably even more so actually that the 1950s and 1960s become kind of political tools in the 1980s and 1990s. Yeah. Um, the two, the, you know, Clinton absolutely stands in the 1990s as the incarnation of 60s values and Republic and his enemies see him as such because they think the 60s were terrible. Now the 70s, I mean, you can actually go through it's each of these sort of little, slightly artificial chunks of post-war history. I mean, the 70s to some people, when I often you know, obviously write articles about the 70s, and whenever I do, there's the, the comments are underneath are fascinating because some people will say the 70s were all inflation, strikes, terrorism is absolute misery. Anyone who claims it was great couldn't have been there. And then the next comment will say, what are you talking about, you muppets? The 70s were an absolute golden age. We went to mm-hmm. university, we had grants, we had unemployment wasn't as high. That awful witch hadn't come in and t- destroyed all our industries, blah, 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 blah. So those things are very, very politicized. Yeah, yeah, so there's quite, I mean, on that theme, there's a question from Rory Martin. Nostalgia plays a big part of national myths and identities. Given recent slogans like take back control and MAGA, make America make great again, yeah. does, does that mean most politics has to be about a return to an Eden, uh, Ed, Edenic past? Well, I think it is, isn't it? I mean, there's always a sense. The nature of being a political opposition means that you are almost always saying there was a better age before the current government were in power and they have, we've lost sight of what makes us great. Well, is, is that not true? Or tends to be truer of uh, parties on the right than the left. I mean, I know that the, the, the left have nostalgia for Attlee or whatever, or, yeah. uh, I don't know, Roosevelt in America or whatever. Yeah, the New Deal, great but, society. But, 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 I mean, it's kind of important on the left to say that the best days are ahead of us. That, you know, we, we introduce better laws, we introduce better employment rights and, and things will get better. Things can only get better. I mean, that's the. Um, well, that's your mate Tony's, uh. So the golden age is projected into the future. 
I think there's a bit of both, actually. I think that there was always a sense of a golden age in the past, and particularly on the left in Britain right now, there's been a kind of sacralization of the Attlee government of the 1940s and a sense that that was the only true Labour government, maybe less so the Wilson government of the 60s, you know, because obviously they don't want to talk about Blair because they people often regard Blair as a sort of traitor and so on. But there's, there is always a huge amount of nostalgia in, in left-wing thinking, I think. I mean, that stuff yeah. that we were talking about in the first half about the Anglo-Saxons and the Norman yoke, I mean, that's been there in British <laughs> socialist thought since the, you know, it was there in the late 19th century, early 20th yeah, century, not, the it's, Labour it's, Party it's, was founded. No one invokes that now. Um, I mean, I think there's a kind of real <laughs> difference. they don't. I, I, I mean, it mattered, so it mattered to Michael Foote. Mattered to, to it mattered to Tony Benn. It mattered to that generation. Does it matter to to does, Corbyn fans? Does Keir sure Starmer I mean. talk about the Norman yoke? Well, Keir Starmer wouldn't, but <laughs> would, 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 but but Corbyn hasn't. As far as no, I, know. I don't, I don't. I'm not totally convinced about Jeremy Corbyn's close knowledge of of British history. To be fair, you, to be you fair. studied it at his public school. Uh, his, no, his um, yes, <laughs> we don't need to. Well, he did. He's got a an unfinished degree in trade union studies, hasn't he, from Polytechnic? Oh, in that case, London. he must have it. Um, uh, no, I think um, I think politics politics is always an argument about the past as much as it is the present and the future. And I think embedded in that is a sense of a falling away from an age of virtue. I absolutely think it's there, left and right, equally. But I think also, would, would you say that, uh, say, in a country like Britain, a country like France, where uh, there's a, ve- a, a very long tradition of political division? Yeah that actually it, it's very difficult to agree on a kind of mutually accepted definition of a golden age. Yes, I do. And that's why um, I think the World World War II in Britain is an exception to that because it's the one period where you have a national government that's put aside party differences and the national interest. It's obviously a war we win. Uh, there's a sense of collective... In, you know, you can... It's a collective... But it's not a golden age because bombs no, are falling but, and there's... No, but you know what... Um, so in I mentioned um, Dad's Army. So in Dad's Army, which began in, I think, 1968, uh, for those people who are not British, so this is an enormously, ridiculously popular sitcom about the Home Guard, the, the group of kind of largely elderly men, too old to fight, who were formed in um, the beginning of the Second World War to defend the country in case of a German invasion. So this is a sitcom about them. But the framing device they use is a reunion dinner. I mean, people have forgotten this. The whole thing is meant to be a flashback inside a framing device of a reunion dinner when Captain Mannering and the other characters are talking about um, what has gone wrong with Britain. And they say, you know, we've lost sight of mm-hmm. what what drove us in in World War Two. And they, they're kind of looking back to a time when everybody pulled together. And there's an absolute sense that the World War was a golden age when people worked yeah, together. Okay. And that's I, been lost in the 1960s. Yeah, but it's not a golden age per se, I don't think. Well, you have a very specific description of golden age that involves a lot of poetry, I think. I do. Uh, but also kind of success and prosperity. Yeah. So I think it's interesting, for instance, that we tend not to think of the Victorian period as a golden age. But I think people do think of the Victorian period as a golden age. I, no, because I think that there's always been this kind of Dickensian shadow hanging over it. There's always been the sense of the workhouses and um, slums and industrial degradation and all that kind of stuff. And I think that's further complicated, obviously, by uh, disagreements over over the British Empire and so on. Um, and so I, I just think that, that, say, in a country like Britain, 
it's politically impossible to settle on any one period as being a golden age. And I think the same is true of, say, of France, where there are lots of people who would say that, you know, the French Revolution was a golden age of egalité and fraternity and liberty and yeah. all that kind of stuff. But obviously there are lots of French people who wouldn't. Um, but then they all look back to the reign of Louis the Fourteenth and think that was a golden age? No, I don't, think, I don't think Republicans would. Um, no, maybe not, I suppose. So you don't think there can be a, mo- there can be a modern... Golden age. I mean, do you not think that? I, I think. A- I think in in modern European nations where there's there's a kind of there's there's an embedded history of left and right. Yeah. Uh, of a, a profoundly different attitude, say to the past. I think it's difficult to settle on a consensus, which is why I think that the, the last period that you can legitimately say you know, as a golden age is kind of the 17th century in the Netherlands. Uh, I knew it because it's I not knew. really political. It's not really. It's. It ceased to be political. It's, See, it's about the kind of, you know, Vermeer and, and canals and uh, tolerance and liberation and all this kind of stuff. And who could object to that? I mean, everyone loves all that. Everyone loves a canal and, and tolerance. <laughs> <laughs> well, the counter argument to that is that we had a ton of questions about the 1990s as a golden yes. age. And yes. clearly a lot okay. of people come to that. do think of that. So Tom McTague, who's... Of the, of the Atlantic Monthly, who's already asked, we've allowed him to ask one question about Edward Gibbon. He says, when did our, our golden age end? Did it end in 1999 with the arrival of Putin in September 2001, with Iraq, the invasion of Iraq in 2003, or with the crash of 2007 to 8? Now, implicit in that is the idea that up till then, it was a golden age. Which we had only began people- in 1989. Yeah, and we had to, I, I, I don't have it here, but I saw on Twitter somebody asked a question saying, the go- they felt the golden age was 1989, 1990, 1991, when the world seemed to be getting inestimably better. Um, I think for, now maybe this is a generational thing. And of course, golden ages can be quite generational things. But don't you think that for our generation, the 1990s feel like a golden age of creativity, yeah. economic affluence, optimism, all those kinds of things? And drugs. <laughs> <laughs> well, not in Chipping Norton. Um, (laughs) Of course not. Um, Well, uh, yes. Although on top of that, I mean, it's something that you said earlier about about people saying the 70s were great. Yeah. Was that often people identify golden ages with their childhood. I mean, we did a whole episode on the 90s. Yeah. We've already done this. But uh, yeah, I mean, I I think that uh, the sense that uh, the West had won, that the end of history was being reached, that yeah. uh, Russia was not going to be a problem. So I think Tom McTague is right to identify Putin as a kind of shadow over that, um, that uh, everything was going to be kind of multiculturally harmonious. So again, 9-11 was a problem with that, um, that uh, everyone would want to become a democracy. So yeah. yes, Iraq was a problem with that and that we would just get, keep on getting richer and richer and everything was going to be fine. So yes, the crash was a problem with that. So you've done a very good job of not not choosing one of Tom O'Tague's options. I'd say the crash. Would you? I'd have said September the 11th, actually. I think September the 11th was there was a definite sense of anxiety after September the 11th, I think. Um, and, a, and a change in tone with the war on terror from what had just kind of ch- change in cultural tone. I, I do think say. you need money to have a golden age. Yeah, I think money is a huge part of it. And it's perfectly possible. That, now, I suppose that the shadow that hangs over this podcast is are the age uh, is, is the 
is the sense of a golden age gone for good because the future will be worse than you know tomorrow will be worse than today because of climate change because of um there are so many people chasing few and fewer and fewer resources all those kinds of things what do you think about that yeah i think there's there's um a kind of dystopian shadow hanging hanging over well everybody obviously on the planet uh I, maybe particularly for people in the west because yeah. um there's a, another Luke Brennan asks, has the West as a whole had a golden age? Or even is it still in one now? Is it arguable that since the Renaissance, the whole world has had Western primacy for good and ill, and this still remains even with China's rise? If so, will the West's long golden age end soon? So I think that is a really good point, that in a sense, the West, you know, if you're measuring it by um, economic and military primacy, the West collectively has enjoyed a golden age because it has... Mm had a kind of primacy which is definitely fading and so the perspective say in india or china may be different yeah i definitely i, th- I definitely think that's right i think um there's it's been an anomalous period of, of of western domination hasn't it i mean china's an interesting one because there the idea of golden ages is kind of fundamental to the whole way that people throughout chinese history understand the kind of the rhythms of the cosmos really that that things kind of come into the correct balance and yeah. then you have a you have a golden age and then things kind of slip out of balance again emperors lose the mandate of heaven and so on and everything gets upended yes surely that's right i mean obviously I think- that's that's you know in a in a communist state as, as like china is now that's no longer kind of overtly felt or believed but it must still be i would i don't know enough about china to know but i guess it must kind of be in the intellectual marrow but surely also if you're if you're one of the winners of today's china you must have a very potent sense of living through a golden age of growth of optimism of you know cities springing out of nowhere and so on i mean it's perfectly possible that if chinese growth brings discontents of its own you know as growth so often does that then that people the next generation of Chinese will look back on now and say that was that was the that was the moment um, when we were culturally, politically, economically more powerful than we had been for centuries. Do you not think? Yeah, I, I mean, I I suppose that that for the whole of Chinese history, people in China have rather like the West has done, have been able to take for granted China's primacy that it's central, yeah. that what's good for China is good for the world. Um, and that the measure of whether there's a golden age or not is how well China is doing. And obviously the, you know, the 18th into the 19th century, um, the discovery that, uh, China wasn't the middle kingdom anymore, that it wasn't the center of world affairs, it wasn't yeah. the fulcrum of world affairs. Came, you know, I mean, no one could believe that they were living in a golden age with that. And now that, now that China is kind of returning to its traditional position as you know, the, the pivotal nation on the face of the planet i don't know maybe <laughs> well, maybe maybe the sense of history as a kind of cycle of golden ages replaced by ages of iron will 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 kick back in i don't but i don't know enough about china to I say mean, i mean a country that obviously so we probably should be talking about it a country that's really never had a sense of a of a golden age in the past is the united states until now i would say so i mean henry luce and the talked about the 20th century going to be the american century and there was always this sense that you know absolutely picking up something you were saying earlier that the the the, about politics that the future would always be brighter that the american dream was of success and of 
and uh, initially an ever expanding frontier and then basically ever expanding intellectual, cultural, economic frontiers. But since probably, I mean, you can see the seeds of that in the seventies in John Updike's rabbit books that talk about the great American ride is ending. And now very much in the last 10 years or so, there's been a sense that you see it in almost all American public discourse, a sense that America's best days may, the fear that America's best days may lie in the past. And that's a which, big change, I think. Which, um, which would presumably, if you believe that, then presumably there's a golden age by which you're measuring it against. Well, the golden age, I think, you see it absolutely implicitly in so much commentary about American politics. There's a sense that the golden age was between, let us say, Pearl Harbor and Vietnam. Do you not think? Wrote the, yeah. the presidencies of Roosevelt, but, Truman, and Eisenhower, and Kennedy, maybe in particular. Um, and with a difference, depending on, on what your politics is, whether you'd emphasize the 50s or the 60s. Or the, yeah, exactly. Um, but do you not think that's, there was a set, there's, yeah. a, there's a, there's a, there's an idea that the Cold War gave moral certainty, that America had a mission, um, that it was making I, I, progress domestically and eradicating prejudice and so on. I mean, again, going back to that, um, um, the New Jerusalem of 45 or the early Roman Republic. Yeah. A, a period of virtue. I mean, Americans did have that. The period of virtue was with the founding fathers. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's not, a, a golden age but it's an age that achieved great things which i think is slightly different yeah but i suppose that that is now coming you know these well, are that's now being guys, refined, these are all it? white men who own slaves so yeah that's so this is your revised. diego diego morgado um yeah argument yeah. that uh the golden ages and of course people say that exactly that about as we've said about pericles's athens about augustan rome these are societies about i don't know ptolemaic egypt or something these are societies based on slavery and exploitation and so have we so. have we argued ourselves into thinking actually there aren't golden ages? I think we may be, which we may do, which is very very <laughs> depressing. Um, well, we've got. I think we should end with a couple of uh, slightly offbeat questions, though. So um, Dave Walters says, "Is now the golden age of historians?" And if not, when? What do you think? <laughs> uh, well, obviously, I mean, I think it is the golden age uh, of historians, though, isn't it? I mean, there are more history books being written now about more periods. We know more about history than any body before more is less well maybe i mean maybe the there's golden, no the golden that... age of historians was obviously uh fifth century bc <laughs> as i know that and Thucydides. well that's only two though isn't it i mean yeah but it's only two yeah holland name and... two more iconic historians holland and sambrook um yes, right well <laughs> okay so i rest my case um paul duncan says um what is your favorite golden age well we think we know yours don't we your favourite golden age, the, the Dutch Republic. It is. I just think. I just think that I'm going to. I'm going to stand up and say I think the Dutch Golden Age is a is a golden age. There was there's a there was a big essay in the New York Times saying that it was. Yes, I think, it's been I think racist to say that it's been, it's been cancelled. I don't care. <laughs> I'm going to risk cancellation by standing up for the Dutch Golden Age. There's an exhibition. I think it's in Canada of Rembrandt. I think it's Rembrandt. The Golden Age of Rembrandt's paintings. And um, I saw this online. Somebody had done a huge thing about it. Uh, every, virtually every single caption when you go into every – because they're, you know, it's sort of very Justin Trudeau-like captions. So every single caption says, you know, Rembrandt painted this painting of, you know, some Dutch burger or something. But just think, if it hadn't been for slavery, how many more Rembrandts have been lost to us, you know, potential Rembrandts? So in other words, you can't just appreciate Rembrandt on its own. You have no. to be conscious of the costs of Rembrandt's world, of the casualties, all that stuff. Well, that's fine. 
I, but, but, but I think, I think that has, to, I mean, I think that has to be factored in. You cannot have a golden age without exploitation. Yeah. I mean, it's not like, cause, so, to, what was it? Was it, uh, um, yeah, Steve from Portslade's question about it being a moral one. I don't actually think it is. I think it's about a mixture of power, prosperity, cultural achievement, um, and a kind of legacy that people can look back on without too much moral anxiety or political anxiety. Right. And I entirely accept the fact, you know, I mean, the Dutch in the golden age are proto-capital. I mean, they're not just proto, I mean, they are capitalists, uh, setting up all everything that, um, that people now might worry about, but it's sufficiently distant that I, I, I don't think that we look at Rembrandt and think about slavery in the way, say, that we might look at a, a National Trust property, perhaps, and think about slavery. <laughs> well, some of us, anyway. Um, you haven't asked me for my golden age. Dominic, what's your favourite golden age? I don't know. I'm, I'm still thinking about it, to be to be. Well, why did you ask honest. me to ask you? Maybe Britain, 1976 to 9? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Go on. Uh, no, I Dominic, think you um, must have one. You wouldn't have asked me to ask you. I'm quite Gibbonian. I, I, I think maybe because I read, maybe because Trajan. I read it, maybe because I read, yeah, because I read it when I was a, a sort of impressionable teenager. Sort of, yeah, exactly. The Rome under Trajan or something. And I think that's, that's largely because, about by ambivalence, isn't it? I think it's so, largely because I picture myself as one of the sort of enormously fat men lying on a couch eating grapes <laughs> rather than as, you know, a gladiator in the arena or something. Um, but I absolutely think that that sense of Rome being a kind of golden age is, is um, embedded in the imagination of anybody who grew up reading Ladybird books or later on watching Gladiator or any of those kinds of things. Don't you? I mean, I think to me, Rome is the, yeah, but, but so is, uh, is, is, is the epitome actually. But, but, but that, that Gibbonian description is so shaded. Yeah. By ambivalence and irony. So uh, he's talking about Nerva Trajan, Hadrian, the Antonines, who delighted in the image of liberty. That's not me. I delighted in the image of liberty, <laughs> but not the, not the substance. Well, fair enough. I pose okay. as a, as a libertarian. Well, I don't mean pose as a libertarian. I, I pose as a freedom loving person, but actually I'm an autocrat. Are you? Yeah, I'm quite autocratic, actually. Well, on that bombshell, <laughs> self avowed. <laughs> Autocrat Dominic Sandbrook. Well, yeah, it goes hand in hand with the whole Marxist, with the whole Marxist historian thing, right? I yes. mean, you know, it well, could yes. be Ceausescu. Um, yes. Right. Well, this, we're just generating. gibberish. We haven't done that for a while because we've been doing some quite focused episodes on Watergate and Thermopylae and stuff. And before we start this, I thought we haven't done a really vague, rambling. <laughs> Drivel, <laughs> drivel-filled one. Anyway, so good, on that note, good. yeah. Um, do you have anything else sensible to say? Yeah, we've got a very good podcast coming up, actually, about medieval science. Um, yes, we do. Which was I think it the golden age of science. Will, yeah, which I think people will really enjoy because it will be much more focused, and there'll be proper facts in it. And um, <laughs> we've got yes. a guest, so that's, that's yes. something. Um, so we shall see you hopefully um, next time. Goodbye. If we haven't put you off for good. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's 
restishistorypod.com. Listener.